our, uh, our new series we are beginning, I'm calling uh, Sturdy Faith in Uncertain Times. And so I'm going to spend a little time this morning just explaining what we're going to do, uh, because what we're going to do is um, very different from anything else that we've ever done before. Uh, and that maybe scares you a little bit. It scares me a little bit. Uh, so I want to take some time to think about uh, what we're going to do and kind of give you some reasons why and lay a foundation so that as we get into it, you can kind of think back to today and our conversation today and remember where this is headed. So um, <clears throat> we, we are going to take a lot of time uh, over the next few months thinking about a lot of ideas that are contrary to Scripture. A lot of a lot of different things that have come up through history and discussions um, that are prominent and how those ideas and how history have sort of come together through uh, various cultural institutions, especially in Western civilization, to change culture, um, to change the conversations that we're having in our society. And eventually, those conversations have really began to affect uh, the things that are happening and the conversations that are being had within the church. And so my argument is that this hasn't, by and large, been a good thing. It's not been a healthy thing. And uh, as we look at the church in the West overall, uh, I see a lot of, uh, of problems that um, I think it does well for us to consider that uh, we are seeking to be faithful and to hopefully avoid some of those things. So I do get a lot of questions about a lot of the things we're going to discuss. I'm sure you have a lot of questions about the things that we will discuss. Um, and some of what we're going to talk about is controversial. Some of it is uncomfortable. Um, but hopefully you know well enough. Now I seek to be an equal opportunity offender. So if you are offended, just hold on. Someone else will be eventually. Uh, but we have to admit that on these things we're going to talk about, there is a lot of disagreement. And not just in the world. This isn't sort of Christians versus the world. And a lot of times it's, it's within the church. It's Christians disagreeing with each other on some of these things. And so the goal is that we can address some issues. We can start to think about them biblically. And we're going to talk about things like uh, the relationship uh, between uh, people and those in authority, power and authority. We're going to touch on things like social justice and race, racial issues. Uh, we're going to talk about the nature of truth and whether or not it is objective. Hopefully we don't have as many disagreements on that one. Um, we're going to talk about things like beauty and, and whether or not beauty is an objective thing that can be uh, addressed and discussed, and why that's important. Is that an important discussion for us to have in the church? Um, so these things that uh, historically in Western civilization have uh, sort of been summarized as talking about goodness, truth, and beauty, and those are the three major uh, elements of the conversation that we're going to have. So full disclosure uh, as to why we're doing this now. A lot of what we are talking about is uh, right in line with uh, the work I've been doing the past two years in my studies for my Ph.D., and uh, next year I start my dissertation, so I, I'm trying to uh, 
to work these things together. I've been asked by Reformed Baptist Seminary to teach this as a class, so all of you are my guinea pigs for a bunch of seminary students here in the next uh, year or so. Um, so I need your feedback as well. I certainly want to know what's been helpful, what's been confusing, all those things, and hopefully as you ask questions and we have conversations, uh, that will become apparent. Um, now, there are going to be times in our conversation where it may not seem evident to you up front uh, as to how what we are discussing relates to um, why we're gathering on Sunday morning to study the Bible and to do theology and those kinds of things. Uh, but I promise, my goal anyway, is that in the end we'll put a nice bow on all of it and uh, you will understand uh, how all of these pieces start to fit together. Working through uh, quite a few ideas uh, can tend to uh, sort of seem like we're getting off on a different path or a different track, uh, but I think it's really important that in order to understand how we should think about these issues and how we can have this conversation, uh, we need to know the background, we need to know the history. We live in a day when um, it's really easy to spend about 10, maybe 15 minutes uh, Googling something, reading half of an article and uh, 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 240, 280 characters on Twitter and think we are subject matter experts. Um, but uh, I think it's important that we spend more time thinking about uh, a greater amount of background uh, before we start having some really in-depth conversations about uh, certain topics. And that alone, I think, gets us further down the road than uh, maybe uh, we're accustomed to in some of our conversations. So another important point I want to bring up, I've sort of alluded to. Um, you might disagree with some of the things uh, that we're going to talk about. And there may be things that we all need to check ourselves on. Um, as I've just mentioned a few of the topics that we're going to address you know that a lot of these discussions and dealing with some of these things can become very uh, contentious, very tense at times. Um, sometimes they become uh, very political in nature. And so I want to urge all of us to be patient with one another in our conversation. Um, this isn't going to be something, uh, we can't let this be something that uh, divides us. I really hope it's something instead that brings us together and helps us to think more biblically about these things with one another. Um, so, I certainly, my goal is to try and convince you uh, of a certain perspective. I've never um, shied away from that. I'm not, I'm not uh, in a uh, university classroom trying to just kind of tell you the facts and let you make up your own mind. I want to convince you from Scripture of something being right and true. Um, there is a, a bias, a perspective that comes, and hopefully it's uh, from God's Word, uh, and that's how it's informed. But... As we think about these things in relationship to the Bible, um, hopefully we can have some open conversation. Feel free to, to disagree, and we can talk about those things. And so uh, just as much as we're learning about certain subjects, discussing certain topics, hopefully, too, this is an exercise for all of us in how to be more effective in our uh, disagreements with one another. Um, that is something uh, that we will talk about. Uh, we... We live in a culture that has, uh, in large part, lost the ability to engage in civil discourse. And, uh, and that is vitally important, especially in the church. Uh, so how do we do that? Well, hopefully we have, uh, we have opportunity to do so. We need that. 
And so if we're going to have those conversations, it has to start with God's people. So a few, uh, a few things to keep in mind for all of us. Uh, first and foremost, always uh, a very simple thing that all of us always need to be thinking about is that when we talk about any issues, we need to act like Christians. Seems pretty simple, straightforward, sometimes something we forget. Uh, we are a people uh, who the Bible calls to live, um, to live in light of and to live as right representatives of and to live worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And so our discourse should reflect that. Uh, one of the elements of love uh, for one another that really comes to play in our discourse is that we assume the best of one another in what is said and not the worst. In these conversations, it's very easy for us to sort of get uh, really excited about what we want to say because we heard something we disagreed with or whatever, and, uh, and not everyone is as good as saying things as someone else. And so we're not here to uh, score points on one another. We're not here to sort of one-up each other. Uh, and if someone says something and it doesn't come out right or maybe it's a bit confusing, we need to clarify before we uh, jump on someone and start attacking. We need to not assume the worst of what each other says. Assume the best, clarify before, uh, before engaging. Um, and part of that, too, is just that we love one another. We need to love each other in our conversations. And again, I'm not saying this because I assume that we won't, but it's always a, a good thing to be reminded of. I think it's important for all of us to think about what we're saying before we say it, right? That counsel that we, uh, we give to our children also applies to us. Before it comes out of your mouth, think about it. How is this going to come across? I think one of the most, um, one of the most dangerous errors that Christians sometimes enter into is we get into a mindset of saying, well, what I'm saying is true, and so it doesn't matter what you think. What I'm saying is true, so I'm just going to say it. And there's no thought given to how we say it. But the Bible is very clear that that matters, right? We don't get to just say what's true. How are we to say what's true? In love, right? Now, sometimes speaking the truth in love still to those who are uh, ready to take offense. It's always going to sound offensive. Um, and sometimes the truth can be said in love and we're still having to say really hard things that maybe others don't want to hear. Nevertheless, we still have a responsibility to speak the truth in love. And so we need to be very careful as to how we're saying what we're going to say and think about that. And part of that too, this is a... Uh, important revelation for some people. I realize uh, for myself, I'm talking to myself here, we need to realize that our opinion may not be accepted by others at first. It's hard to swallow sometimes because, uh, you know, we all know that we're right. <laughs> um, but the goal should be that we're seeking to persuade instead of beat someone else into submission. Uh, it's seeking to convince instead of uh, sort of uh, force you to agree with me. Um, and how do we do that? Well, 
we can do that by, again, looking to an objective standard, which is God's Word. We've all come together with that basis in mind, that that's where we turn uh, in any disputes, uh, that we need to know what God's Word says about that. And then, of course, in all of this, uh, we need to be patient with one another. So, just some reminders for us. Uh, Obviously, none of that is uh, groundbreaking or earth-shattering. Any of you could have made that list, but it's important that we are constantly reminding ourselves of these things, and probably along the way, uh, we will do so again. So, here's the basis of where we are going with things. Uh, Western civilization was founded on biblical principles. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that, uh, that it was founded necessarily by Christians, but principles of Christianity. Um, and when you come into the Americas, in its early founding, you have people who are deists, and you have people who are Christians. Uh, but by and large, what you have, uh, you have Enlightenment-style thinkers Uh, But they're not hostile to theism, and their worldview is based on Judeo-Christian principles. So things like the moral law, the Ten Commandments, uh, were very much a part of uh, the culture. So you can read a lot of the writings of uh, the early founders of our nation, uh, certainly those in, in many in Europe, and uh, you realize that a lot of them were hostile to Christianity as, uh, as a religion. Um, but in terms of principles, uh, despite the uh, sort of impossibility of them to work those out apart from Christ, uh, they still held to certain biblical principles in theory uh, that they intended to be worked out in culture. And... Uh, I would argue, by and large, that uh, Western civilization has been what it is um, because of that. The, the, the enormous success of, uh, of the experiments that have been conducted have been uh, not because a lot of people were really smart and did a lot of smart things, but because of Christianity, because of biblical principles. And because those were laid down in the beginning and have been built upon and borrowed from, um, and, and for no other uh, important reason that we can point to. That is first and foremost the foundation of any successful, uh, prosperous civilization is the principles that we find in Scripture. And so, as that, uh, as that was the foundation, uh, we, we saw a lot of growth and prosperity, but unfortunately, and I will pin it sort of at the end of World War I, Uh, that foundation has been cracking. That foundation slowly has been uh, eroding. And it's, my argument though is that that's not just happening, but it's being done by design. And most people don't understand what that design is or where it's coming from. And so that's where I want to sort of spend our time. Where has that design been Where does it come from and where is it taking place and how is it working out? Well, it's working out through various cultural institutions, um, things like the academy, things like media, things like entertainment, literature, all of these, where ideas are uh, sort of incubated and where they begin to spread. 
And those have entered into the Western conversation with the intention of undermining faith, the intention of undermining reason, and the intention of undermining traditional uh, values and cultural systems. And so that's, uh, those are the things that we're going to, to think about in, in broad categories. So we're going to talk about ideas like uh, Marxism, uh, something called critical theory. We'll talk about postmodernism. We're going to discuss all of those influences on the church. And I will give us a lot of examples of where we're seeing these things and hearing these things in the church today. Now, that being said, um, we may be looking at uh, the things that some people have said, and some of those people may be individuals, pastors, preachers, uh, writers, whatever, that in many other ways uh, we agree with and we're very thankful for. Uh, But I think a part of understanding how uh, subtle some of this can be is understanding that even faithful people, even those who have a really solid foundation uh, and good theology can be influenced by, uh, by different ideas because they are seductive or they are so subtle that it seems like this is good. And that is, uh, that is our enemy's uh, number one tactic, right? Is to have enough of the truth evident uh, that we don't recognize the falsehood. And, uh, and so we're trying to figure out uh, what the falsehood is so that we can recognize it when it comes up. So how can, how can Christian faith, and that's one of the questions we want to work through, how can Christian faith stand if the cultural foundation uh, is crumbling underneath it? Is, there even, is this even an issue? Are these issues that we're going to address, are these things worth talking about? Well, you'll have to make that assessment uh, when we're all done with this class and uh, let me know uh, what you think. Uh, what has been the influence on the church and where do we hear it in discussions within the church today? Again, we'll look at several things. Um, in the last couple of years, there's been several uh, well-known, very prominent conferences and things that have taken place uh, that very much concern me and concern some others that we're going to talk about and see what's being said and how it's being said and uh, how that plays out in comparison to Scripture. Uh, we're going to think about a lot of different people, about their ideas, what they've written, what they've said. Uh, some of these are dead, uh, dead people. Uh, those are the best ideas to work with because they don't change, so we can sort of uh, nail down where they're at. Um, we're gonna, so we'll think about some, a lot of older ideas, uh, but those older ideas are very much part of the conversation today. Uh, nothing we're going to discuss uh, historically uh, is anything that we don't see very much uh, evident today. So please ask a lot of questions. I'm hoping for a lot of interaction here. It's going to help us understand these things together. So if I say something that's not clear, don't wait. Just throw your hand up and we will, uh, we will have a conversation about whatever. And this is going to help me to uh, think through these things uh, a little bit more so that I can develop this. So that's more useful for other individuals and churches as well. So um, any questions there? Any thoughts there? Yeah, Jeff. I don't, yes, yes. I just found the answer to that question. Yes. <laughs> Anything else? All right. Well, let's, uh, yeah, go ahead, Rob. 
Uh, not yet. I think I was thinking about that to kind of give us an outline. Uh, the reason I hesitated was um, because I don't know in terms of how much conversation we'll get through. But uh, maybe, maybe every couple of weeks I'll give us something so that we can at least stay on, on course a little bit. That's a good idea. Uh, this, you're auditing this course, so... <laughs> yeah, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. All right, well, the conversation uh, really begins uh, with the idea or the, the theory of Marxism. And so I think we'll spend some time this morning talking about that. And again, I told you this is going to be very different from anything we've ever done before. Uh, you're probably going to think about this and think, what in the world does this have to do with the Bible? Why are we doing this in Sunday school? Um, but I promise we'll see where all of this uh, works out. So we need to think about what Marxism is uh, because it plays itself out in all of the other things that we're going to talk about. Um, so I want to define it and talk about it a bit this morning, and that's where we'll spend the remainder of our time. So um, we hear that word a lot. Uh, people throw it around. Maybe you've read a thing or two about Marxism uh, through the years. You might have read about it in school or have some general concept of what it is. So uh, let me ask you, what is Marxism? How would you define it? Yeah, Kevin. Okay. Good. That's one element of it, right? That there is an authoritarian power that takes from the masses and redistributes to... Uh, to everybody, right? So that's the, that's the political, um, economic element of it. Yes. That, uh, there... Right, so we're sort of manufacturing um, a means by which we can achieve equality, right? Good way to say that. Russ? Uh-huh. Right, right. Good, so uh, we'll spend a lot of time, especially when we get into postmodernism, talking about this idea of people being viewed in light of what group they're in and not as individuals. And uh, hopefully, just my saying that helps you kind of think, how does this relate to a conversation about biblical principles? That's a big one, and we need to really uh, spend a lot of time thinking about that. Good, Jeff? Yeah, good. We're, good. We're going to spend some time talking about that here in just a little bit and his views on religion, Karl Marx. Yeah. Yeah, good. There's a, there's a huge uh, historical background here, and I would encourage anyone who gains more interest in all of this to start thinking about and reading some of those things um, because that's, that's really important. Uh, to understand why did these ideas uh, come about. Uh, and, you know, everyone has different ideas. Some of them are crazy. You can go online and find any number of crazy ideas people have, but not all of them are going to, uh, they're not going to take hold and become popular. So why does something like this become very popular, especially in a day and age where there wasn't something like the Internet to disseminate information? Why did this become so popular? So... I will say uh, just sort of a summary that Marxism is, uh, is economic and social. There are economic parts of it. There are social parts of it. 
uh, political and economic theories. This comes from Karl Marx and his partner, uh, Frederick Engels, and they developed this theory. Now, we could spend an entire year dealing with the implications and ramifications of all the outcomes, but we're just uh, trying to define it. And uh, specifically, we're going to spend our time dealing with the social ideas, because those are really where um, the major crux of the biblical issues come in. Certainly, the economic issues are part of it, and whether or not it's even a moral thing to think along those lines in relationship to what the Bible teaches about economics. Uh, But we're not going to spend so much time there. We're going to deal with the social ramifications. So what is the basic idea here? It is a theory that there is a class struggle that exists. And because of that existence, um, we want, uh, the, the idea is that we think through how, um, how to sort of level the playing field. How can we achieve equality across the board for all of mankind? Not just equality of opportunity, but equality of outcome. I hope that makes sense. That's a really important um, part of this. It's not that everyone has the same opportunities with Marxism. It's that everyone has the same outcome. And so that's the same economic outcome, that we all make the same amount of money, uh, that we all have the same level of education. All these kinds of things are part and parcel of what defines true Marxist ideas. Now, the, one of the basic premises of the theory was that it was designed to fundamentally change Western civilization. A lot of people don't realize that. One of the reasons Karl Marx designed his theory and promoted his theory was because he wanted, admittedly so, to change Western civilization. Uh, It's directly opposed to capitalism, to the ideas of free, independent markets, competitive competition in the marketplace, all these things. But more important to what we're dealing with, it's against the idea of, uh, of every individual having responsibilities as an individual that contribute overall to a society. And that the decisions you make influence and affect you more than anyone else, and then your family, and then your church, and then your community, and on from there. Sort of this concentric circle idea of individualism, uh, this eliminates that individual and deals with the group, with the whole. Uh, It's a system that believes in the importance of central authority, as was said before, about redistribution, making sure we're all on an equal playing field. And so the main idea is that everything is owned by the public. There isn't private property. You don't own anything, which, again, I hope your Ten Commandment radars are going off right now because the Ten Commandments talk about private property, right? That's a big part of God's law. And yet here we have a system that is saying private property isn't a thing. It shouldn't be a thing. Um, because in his estimation, it's, that's the very reason for this disparity, for this um, conflict between those who have and those who do not have. And so right there, we've created this idea of these groups, and we'll talk about those in a minute. So, to do what, uh, if you know your, um, 
ways of uh, debate. There's two ways to look at an argument. You can, uh, you can straw man an argument, which means you kind of build a, a, an argument that they're not actually making, and you just the idea is that you can beat a straw man and knock him down, no problem. Uh, we don't want to straw man anything. We want to build the opposite, which is a steel man, so that we understand the position, so we're actually arguing against what people actually think and believe. So I want to steel man Marxism for a minute. Um, if all of these ideas were implemented in society, what would that look like in their estimation? Not in actuality, but in their estimation, what would it look like if you had a society that operated on pure Marxist principles? What's that? Yeah, that's what they're aiming for. And they have written about this. Utopia. It's perfect, right? What's that? Yeah, <laughs> right. Good. Everyone is equal. No one's above anyone else. We all have uh, the same thing, the same size house. We drive the same cars. We eat the same food. We have the same cell phones. Whatever it is that's being developed is the same across the board, right? Except for a small group of individuals uh, who the society has determined are um, the ones who are more knowledgeable, more righteous, whatever, and they are the ones who have to determine, someone has to determine, right, how everything's going to be distributed. And so it's going to be them. Uh, and if you've read Animal Farm, that's where the idea that some, uh, all pigs are equal, but some pigs are more equal than others, right? <laughs> um, but that's the idea, right? That uh, you have a central, small governing authority uh, in theory, and they're determining how the rest of us are going to live. And that is to bring about utopia. Um, in Marx's day, he saw people going to work. Now think this is uh, pre-World War I, so you have a lot of people, where are they going to work? What kinds of places are they working in? Yeah, factories and everything else. And they only saw themselves, in his estimation, as cogs in a wheel. They weren't creating anything that benefited them. They were just going to get their paycheck so that they could go buy more things and continue down the road until they died. And that's no way to live in Marx's uh, theory here. And so he wanted to free people from having to live in that system. And now we want our work to matter. We want what we do to be beneficial, not just to the man making all the money, but to all of us. And so my work has to, uh, has to have meaning, and the things I develop in my work have to have meaning. I'm not just making uh, bolts that are going to go into something that I'll never see again. Uh, and so um, that was the idea, that now everything is going to matter for all of us. Um, who knows the name of what Marx wrote uh, that became very famous and sort of outlines all these principles? Yes, the Communist Manifesto, or uh, Das Kapital, is the original title of it. So here's the basic premise. You have two types of people in the world, and you've all probably heard these names, and now you'll know where they come from if you didn't before. You have the bourgeoisie, which is just fun to say, and the proletariat, two groups of people. And everyone in the world, according to Marx, is in one of those groups. You're either part of the bourgeoisie, you're bougie, or you're in the proletariat. The bourgeoisie are the people who own businesses 
and they're the ones who made all the money. They're the entrepreneurs, the CEOs, those kinds of people. So if you want to think of it in terms of good guys and bad guys from Marx's perspective, these are the really bad guys. These are the ones who uh, were a small group of people who held all the assets. They made all the decisions. Uh, they influenced the society, the way people lived, the way people thought. And uh, in his mind, they were getting richer and richer, and everyone was staying poor. And so they were oppressing this other group of people who is called the proletariat. And that's everyone else. That's the working class. Uh, they're miserable. They're depressed. They're just trying to survive as a part of this machine. Ultimately, uh, none of this benefits them at all. They're going to be used by the bourgeoisie, and in the end, they're going to die, and their life is going to mean nothing to anybody. Uh, that was the general idea there. So Marx believed this gap between the two needed to be leveled out, and everything needed to be the same across the board. Well, how was that going to take place? Does anyone know how he thought that would take place? Okay, eventually that would be the case. Yep, Robin Hood would swoop in. Yeah, good. The, the principle as it would work out would be, um, you know, everyone, whatever you do, it's all going to kind of go in the same place. And so regardless of your level of contribution, it's going to be the same. Yeah, Tyler. Yes, good. Yeah. Eventually, Marx believed that the proletariat would be so oppressed by the bourgeoisie that they were going to revolt. That there would be a proletariat revolution. And so this system, this Western system which, by and large, as I've said already, is a system based on biblical principles, was going to be overthrown via revolution. And so all of those in power, all of those making money, all of those creating industry and everything else, they're going to be run over, taken over, and the proletariat will rise. And then we will be able to establish uh, Marxism as a system, economic, social, political um, all of it's going to work out from there. And so uh, Marx predicted that capitalism ultimately was going to fail and, uh, and is going to bring about his system. Now, people talk about Marxism sort of um, synonymously with communism. He wrote the Communist Manifesto. Um, and, uh, and socialism is a part of that, but is much broader. So from this, you may have heard this phrase, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. That's what Marx said. So each person does what they are able to do. So maybe your abilities are as a doctor, or maybe your abilities are as an electrician, or maybe your abilities are as a ditch digger. Whatever they are, you do what you do, but the outcome is going to be the same for all of us. So there's no value hierarchy in terms of what you do or how you do it. And so, uh, that plays out in a lot of different ways. Now, was mentioned before, I think it's important to consider, in light of all of this, what did Marx think about religion? What is the Marxist view of religion? Say again what you said, Jeff. Uh, religion is the opiate of the masses. Yeah, 
Religion is the opiate of the masses. That's a quote from Karl of Marx. What does that mean? Yeah. Exactly. Good. So if you think of the language we've introduced, religion exists in his mind because the proletariat was miserable and alienated and those in control found a means by which they could influence and keep people under their thumb. So what does the church become to someone thinking that way? What's that? Yes, good. Now all of a sudden the church isn't a place of hope and refuge. It's a place of oppression, right? Because those who have any kind of leadership in the church are part of the system. Holding man down, locking him into ideas. So religion, to Marx, was a response to the pain of being alive, of living. He said the, the, uh, the idea of life, the idea of having to live life, is only, uh, is only being slightly mitigated by the fact that um, people have something to look to. And that's what it is, yeah. Uh, n- not necessarily. By then, there's, there was a large Catholic influence, but there's also Lutheran. There's quite a few Protestant uh, movements at the time in, in where he was. Yeah. Right. No, Marx was, uh, he was pretty much an atheist through and through. Yeah. 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 Uh, Here's a quote from Marx. He said, Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the feeling of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless circumstances. Man, that makes me want to wake up in the morning, doesn't it? (laughs) He, he, uh, as Jeff said, he called religion the opium, the opiate of the people, um, and had been useful for the ruling classes to oppress and to give false hope uh, to people. Uh, and that was sort of the idea. There was this, this false hope that was being propagated. Uh, but it was being done in order that they could hold people down. And so a lot of people became very excited about Marxism in Europe, thinking that this was going to be the thing. Uh, they would look at what he was saying. Yes, I feel like I'm a cog in a wheel. I don't get the sense that my life matters or what I do matters, so I'm looking for that thing that's going to give me meaning and purpose. Again, your biblical uh, radar should be going off right now. I need something to give me meaning. I need something to give me purpose. And where am I going to find that? I'm going to find that in being able to do something according to my ability and my abilities being able to contribute to the needs of everyone else. That's what I need. And so Marxism sort of became this popular idea I want to get to a financial and a social place that I'm not at and I've been hoping for and I'm going to live a better life than I've ever lived before. So this is a great idea. This is going to be utopian. So a lot of things were going to happen in the minds of the Marxists. The proletariat was going to rise up. They were going to take over. Uh, Economic crises, uh, wars, all of these things were going to be things that brought the West to an end. And they were going to rise, and they were going to have their way. The problem, of course, is that it never happened. (laughs) It never happened. And I say, thanks be to God, that it never happened. Um, 
And by the end of World War I, Marxism didn't live up to its expectations. People were becoming more disenchanted by the ideas. World War I was supposed to be the thing that was the catalyst for the proletariat revolution, and it never happened. Uh, the Great Depression was supposed to be something that was the ideal environment for the rise of Marxism. It never happened. Uh, in fact, all of the people who would have been considered in the proletariat started buying cars and microwave ovens and televisions for their own homes. And so then all of a sudden, these ideas aren't so popular anymore. And yet, there was still a group who wanted to propagate these ideas. And, uh, and that's where it becomes very intentional in terms of entering into the institutions of the West. And that's where we're going to uh, pick up uh, when we start next week. Go ahead, Joe. I'm sure you're going to deal with this, but based on what you just said, how is the bullshit That's a big, that's a big undertaking. Okay. Yeah. And I <laughs> but for you say it never happened, I thought that was. Yeah, well, it was an attempt at it, for, for sure. It was an attempt, but very quickly a failed attempt. Right, right, right. It wasn't the rise of revolution. It was sort of imposed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to each according to his need. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Great. And we're going to see that through all of these ideas we're going to look at. It's that same pattern sort of played out in different ways. Okay, this didn't work, so maybe let's try this. Oh, let's try this. And we're just, uh, if you use the Babel illustration, we're just building different towers of Babel, and all of them keep crashing down. So, um, and now, uh, now the tower that they're trying to crash down is that of, of the Western ideal. Yes, exactly. Good. So you guys are starting to connect all of the biblical dots, which was what I was hoping for. Uh, so good. Maybe this won't be uh, this won't be too too bad. So good. Well, we're out of time. So let's uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you again for our time. I do pray that as we start to think about these things, uh, as our our understanding is uh, enhanced. Um, that as we have conversations, as we hear uh, things going on around us, that we can think as Christians, uh, that we can apply Scripture, uh, apply biblical principles, um, and in doing so, uh, that we can uh, be more faithful to your word. And uh, that as uh, error comes in, as ways of thinking and ways of articulating ideas come in that are contrary to your word, even if they come subtly, that we can recognize them and avoid them, uh, ultimately being able to avoid uh, all of the ways of the evil one. And so we pray for your blessing on our time as we meet together uh, each week, that it would be beneficial to us and that it would um, be a benefit uh, to uh, the strengthening of your church. We pray now for you to be with us as we gather for corporate worship, uh, that you would be at work in the hearts of your people. And for those who do not have ears to hear, would you grant those today, uh, that today would be the day of salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.